following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. And a reminder, the privilege it is that we have God's Word freely available to us now, which we're going to turn to. So do grab a Bible um, that hopefully is near you. And we're continuing in our series in 2 Timothy. And if you turn to page 1196, 1196, you will find our reading for today, which is 2 Timothy chapter 3, first nine verses there, 1196, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And Carolyn is going to come and read that for us. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambre oppose Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Brilliant. Carolyn, thank you very, very much. Well, we've got some handouts which are, are coming out. They're not under the seats as usual, but Tom and Toby are very kindly bringing them round, so um, do grab hold of one of those, and that will give you signposts of where we're heading. We're going to spend a little bit of time seeking to understand these, these words and uh, find out what's going on here, what uh, it means for us uh, today. So as those handouts are going out, why don't I lead us in prayer, ask for God's insight into these words. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, we read this, Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that you would help us to reflect on what uh, you are saying here through your word, and please give us insight. Help us to understand this world in which we live, help us to understand ourselves, our hearts, help us to understand the church universal, help us to understand more of you and more of your ways and to place our confidence in Jesus alone. In his name we pray, amen. Now here's a question for us uh, to think about as we start. What sort of world do we live in? What sort of world do we live in? Big question. Uh, what is the nature of this world? Uh, what should we expect from this world? What does normal life look like 
in this world. It's been fascinating in recent weeks, just the whole uh, talk about AI, artificial intelligence. I don't know how much you've sort of engaged with all of that. And I wonder if our sort of approach to that might reveal a little bit about our sense of the world. So for some, AI is incredibly exciting. And it opens up a whole world of opportunities and progress for us to make as the world, as society. For others, we look at AI and, uh, to be honest, we're a little bit frightened. We feel pretty pessimistic. We think, how could this be used to bring about harm and, and damage? How could things go wrong? And I don't know whether you are more on the optimistic side or more on the pessimistic side. But perhaps that is a little window into our sense of the world. Uh, what do we sort of world do we live in? Uh, what should we expect of this world? Uh, both in terms of the world as a whole, but also in terms of our lives and uh, the world around us. And today's passage, as the Bible again and again does, it's, it's deeply realistic about the world in which we live. And particularly these words that we've just been reading, they're pretty sobering. Then if you read this and thought, gosh, those are strong words being said. It is very sobering. But I also want us to see that these words are full of hope as well. Yes, there is a certain amount of alarm in these words that we need to hear. They are alarming. But also, I hope as we look at this passage, we'll see that we can find security. We can find confidence in a world that at times can be very challenging and quite alarming. Just to remind you, it's been a couple of weeks since we looked at 2 Timothy, to remind you what's going on here. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul right near the end of his life, and he's writing to a chap called Timothy, who's been a sort of prodigy, and um, it's in a context of really challenging times. Paul is in prison. He is expecting to die very, very soon uh, at the hands of the Roman Empire. Uh, and um, he's also even more concerned. In fact, this is what's really bothering him. He's concerned about false teaching that's around and about in the early church. Uh, people, false teachers who subvert, who undermine, who rewrite, who distort the gospel that Paul is committed to proclaiming, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul do, is doing, he no, knows he's about to die, and he's really handing the baton on to Timothy and people like Timothy, uh, passing the flame on, we thought of that analogy, and charging Timothy back in chapter 1, verse 14, to guard the good deposit, this beautiful gospel that was entrusted to Paul and is entrusted to Timothy and entrusted to the church and has been entrusted uh, to us today, all through the generations. We're to guard this good deposit with the help of the Holy Spirit. And at this point, Paul is really going into the toughest realities of what this means, of what this looks like. Which is why I think he starts chapter 3 with those words, mark 
this. It's the idea of double underline it, highlight it. This is something we really need to take note of. Mark this. Let me read verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. There will be terrible times in the last days. What's all that about? What's the last days all about? That's the first thing to understand. What is the last days? It's actually a phrase that comes up uh, a number of times in the Bible, and it speaks of the period in which we live right now. It's basically the period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. The time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and his return. And the word used here to describe that is the last days. We live in the last days. It's the, this era before Jesus will return and bring in the new creation. And he's saying, in these days, there'll be terrible times and terrible people. Terrible times and terrible people. Um, these terrible times, uh, that word can be translated as stressful times. Deeply stressful times. The idea is sort of going on a voyage. If you go on a voyage, so if you've done a cruise or anything like that, if you go on a voyage, and there'll be times, of course, with calm waters, uh, then there'll be times of choppier waters, but also there are storms out there. And I don't know if you have been in a storm before. Uh, I haven't, but it's clearly very, very frightening. And what Paul is saying here is there will be times, not just of choppy waters, but actually of stormy waters too, where we feel threatened, where we feel uh, under huge pressure. And that is something to expect. It's not going to be all the time, everywhere, but there will be significant times of stormy waters for God's people, for the church, through these last days. And actually, we'll just be praying about some very much going through that at the moment. There'll be terrible times, and there'll be terrible people. And this is in the context of Paul particularly talking about the false teachers, people who are subverting the gospel. And three questions for us to think about uh, that I think Paul answers here. How do you spot such terrible people? How do they operate? How far will they get? How do you spot them? How do they operate? How far will they get? We'll probably spend most of our time on, on the first one, uh, which is really verses 2 to 5. How do you spot them? Let me read from verse 2. We're told this. People in these last days will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that is quite a list, isn't it? And not the sort of people you probably want to hang out with. There are, I think, 19, I counted, 19 vices listed there describing uh, these sort of terrible people uh, that Paul wants to highlight. Um, now, we're not going to go through each of these in turn, but it's quite interesting. I don't know if you notice how it's framed. 
the beginning and the end there. People will be lovers of themselves, verse 2, and then if you look at the other end, rather than lovers of God. Lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And in fact, actually you can see the theme of love comes up again and again, explicitly through here. So we see these people will be lovers of money. Uh, They will be without love, beginning of verse 3. Uh, not lovers of good, end of verse 3. Uh, lovers of pleasure. And I think it's helpful to observe that because what that shows is what's going on right at the heart. Where we go wrong, where people go wrong, it is always an issue fundamentally of the heart. And actually, you could put it another way. You could say what it is, is it's misdirected love. It is misdirected love. Uh, The writer James Smith says this, to be human is to be a lover and to love something ultimate. To be human is to be a lover and to love something ultimate. We are wired to love as human beings. We're wired to love, to give ourselves, to give our minds, our affections, our desires, our soul to something. That is what we're wired to do. But the tragedy of humanity is that it's been misdirected. We love the wrong things. The only person who can fully satisfy us, we are, are made to love ultimately God. And yet, we love stuff. We love other things. We love self. And so we have a world that we see today of individualism, the love of self. We have a world today of materialism, the love of money, the love of stuff. We have a world today of hedonism, the love of pleasure. It's it's reading this stuff. It's hard not to say this is to some degree, characterizes the world in which we live today. Yes, different seasons, it will look a little bit different, different intensities, but actually, these are quite recognizable features, aren't they, in our own day, and have been throughout history, throughout the last 2,000 years, through these last days. And what is striking about misdirected loves is that it leads on to all sorts of consequences. If we get our heart set on the wrong thing, all sorts of problems flow from that. Uh, one way of thinking about it is, you know, if you believe one lie, then a whole other series of lies come from, uh, sort of grow out of that. Or um, another way of thinking about it is uh, that our hearts, we're sort of, um, that, that we have faulty maps in our hearts. We look at the world in slightly the wrong way. So, uh, to give a little illustration of this, um, there's a story back in the 19th century, the USS Jeanette, which was a, um, a ship that was on, on an expedition to explore the polar, uh, the North Pole, a polar expedition, uh, led by Captain... Lieutenant George uh, DeLong, and um, he went on a voyage to discover the North Pole. And he took with him 
True story. He took with him a map uh, come up by a chap called Dr. August Peterman. And uh, this map described what the North Pole would look like. And on this map, it, had, uh, it said that there would be ice, but you'd be able to get through the ice. And then on the other side of the ice, there was this open sea, this all beautiful open sea, no ice at all. And uh, there's free sailing out the other side. And they went on this expedition in the expectation of getting through the ice into these open seas in the North Pole. And as we know, um, that map is just not based around reality. So they went on this expedition, and the ice closed in on them, and it didn't open up at all. And it crushed the boat, and they had to abandon the boat, and it was a complete disaster, all because of a faulty map. Faulty maps get us into trouble. And that's a bit of an illustration of what is going on in all our hearts, actually. Uh, in our human nature, we have misdirected loves. We don't love God as we should, and instead we love other things. And because of that, everything goes out of kilter. And it changes all our different behaviors. And I think that is what is going on here with these people that Paul is describing. So it's not just that they're lovers of self rather than lovers of God, but because of that, it leads to all these other things. It leads to boastfulness, bigging up themselves, pride. It leads to being abusive, not honoring other people, but pushing themselves up. It leads to disobedience to parents because they know best, rejecting authority. It leads to a lack of gratitude, to unholiness, to being unforgiving, to being slanderous of others, to being without self-control at times, to being brutal, treacherous, rash, conceited. When our map is wrong, everything else starts to be affected by that. That is what has gone wrong with humanity. There is misdirected loves. And the truth is, when this grows and grows unchecked and becomes settled characteristics, settled behavior, that's when we get into this space of terrible people that Paul is describing here, who are doing an enormous amount of damage. Now, it gets a little bit worse because there are two shocks, I think, as we think about this. One is this. These people are within the church. These people are within the church. People who are in this settled state of uh, misdirected loves, and so their hearts have gone into all sorts of wrong places, and this has become their defining characteristics. Uh, Paul says, these people are within the church. So have a look at verse 5. He says this, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, these people that Paul is speaking about, they, they look godly. They look like religious people. They are the sort of people who go to church and seem to be praying and seem to be talking the talk and are saying, look, I'm following God's. 
But actually, the truth is, it's just a sham. It's a fraud. It's just external. When we look more closely, we can see that. When we look more closely and see the character of such people, that's when it's revealed. It's true for uh, the Pharisees. Think about Jesus' day and the Pharisees. Had all the external trappings of religion. And yet again and again, Jesus exposed their character. And it's true, no doubt, in our day as well. Paul is saying it is true that there could well be people within the church as a whole that present as godly. But there is no power because there's actually no gospel at the heart. Because Jesus is not at the heart. Because rather than loving God, they love self and stuff. So we're called to be discerning, uh, to look for character, not to be surprised by that, not to be naive by that reality, but to look for character. So that's the first shock. These people are within the church. Second shock, these people are like you and me. These people are like you and me. I think that's why Paul lands where he does in verse 5. He says, have nothing to do with such people. Why, why have nothing to do with such people? What's, what's the danger there? And I wonder if the danger is that we think such people are sort of a totally different type of human being. Uh, that when we see people in a settled state behaving like this, we think that they're just a, that would never be me. But the truth is, of course, it can be us. Because, well, the seeds of these things, the shadow of these characteristics, they exist within all of us to some degree or another. And if we allow it to grow unchecked, it can become our settled character as well. That can happen in the church, which is why I think Paul says we need to avoid, have nothing to do with such people. Now, the sharp amongst you will think back a couple of weeks ago and you'll look to say, hey, what about verse 25 of chapter 2? Opponents must be gently instructed uh, as Paul's talking about these false teachers with these characteristics. And um, that is true. Uh, it is not to say we're not to speak to opponents. I don't think Paul's contradicting himself here. We are to gently instruct false teachers but also, at the same time, there is a sense in which we are to avoid, we're not to relate uh, to people in such a way that they will influence us and shape us. Again, in verse 17, Paul, a couple of weeks ago, we saw, spoke about uh, false teaching being like gangrene. It spreads and it's deadly. And I think what Paul is saying here, we need to make sure that we distance ourselves from such false teaching, such that it doesn't spread, because it will have an impact upon us, because the seeds of this way of living and the uh, shadow of this way of living, they exist within us. And so I think what Paul is saying is that that in certain situations, in certain circumstances, does, does mean disentangling oneself from people who are behaving like this. 
uh, avoiding, uh, perhaps impaired communion could be a way of putting it. And linked to that, not simply thinking about other people, but we do need to think about ourselves here. We need to apply this to ourselves. And uh, perhaps now is not a bad time to think, look, are there misplaced loves in my heart? Does my heart yearn towards stuff that is not God? Am I a lover of self? Am I a lover of pleasure? Am I a lover of money when I should be a lover of God? It's classic idolatry. Making good things God things. And it's always worth just checking one's heart. Is, is there something going on? Do we need to ask questions of ourselves? Good questions for identifying idols. Misplaced loves in our hearts. So, you know, what do you dream about in those sort of idle moments? What fills your daydreams? Uh, what do you have nightmares about? Not necessarily literally, but what, are you, what, are you, what, would, what would be a disaster? What, what would you be most anxious about happening? What do you spend money on most easily? Uh, the answers to those questions can help us identify misplaced loves in our life. So, how do you spot terrible people? We need to look at character, and we need to avoid such people. And we need to look first in our own hearts and identify idols and turn from them and turn to God. Right, that's the main uh, section. Uh, Two other questions, though. Uh, How do such people operate? How do such people operate? And the answer is this. They target the vulnerable. So Paul is saying, these false teachers, what they do is to target the vulnerable. Have a look at verse 6. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now what Paul's doing here is giving, giving an example. And he speaks of some women who were vulnerable, it seems, for a number of different reasons. Uh, Perhaps because they were isolated at home. Uh, These people, they're going into homes, worming their way into homes. And so perhaps these women, they were particularly isolated at home. But also, it seems these people he's talking about also uh, were burdened by their sins, They were sort of weighed down by guilt. Also, we see that they're weak-willed. They are um, swayed by all kinds of evil desires. They sort of give in to them. They're weak-willed. And also, we see that they are always learning, but never landing. Verse 7, always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I think that's fascinating. It's a fascinating insight, speaking of these women here, who clearly the sort of people who were thinking lots, reading books maybe, going on courses, talking about ideas, um, but never landing, never having settled convictions on things. And I think what Paul is saying, such people are really, really vulnerable are really vulnerable to new, exciting, seemingly plausible ideas. They 
are very vulnerable to being gullible, to being taken in. And it's, a, it's an interesting mix, isn't it? It's a toxic mix, really, of guilt, of weak willpower, and of just uncertainty, not being sure of one's grounds. I think the images here is a bit like if you've been away on holiday, going to a, to a, a new country, a foreign country you've never been to before, and um, you come out of the airport, and in those early moments, that is when they always say you're most vulnerable, isn't it? It's a new place, feel disorientated, new sights and sounds and smells, you have no idea where you're going, and you're particularly vulnerable in that sort of situation, aren't you? Where you feel a bit disorientated. I think that's a sort of description of what's going on here, that toxic mix of guilt, weak willpower, uncertainty. And those are the situations which these false teachers were exploiting. And we need to beware of that. We need to beware of that. I think that's what it means for us. How are we beware? To be beware of it? Well, we need to go to the gospel, I think. We need to go to the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is our best defense against false teaching against attractive ideas that might seem plausible at first, but actually take us away from God and take, take us to self or to money or to pleasure and to loving those things rather than God. We need to turn to the gospel. And we need to address these areas that can create vulnerability. So we need to know the security of forgiveness. And in Jesus Christ, all your guilt is washed away. Those sins, they, they don't need to weigh us down. We are completely forgiven in Christ. Knowing that, that just gives us security, doesn't it? Are we to know the power of God's Spirit in our lives? If we are trusting in Christ, we have his Holy Spirit in us. He is with us. He is our helper. And so we don't need to be weak-willed. We have the Spirit to help us. And around uncertainty, God has revealed himself. He's made himself clear. We can know truth. I guess in our culture, doubt is something that is sort of often highly prized and is seen as being mature. And of course, there are areas where it's inappropriate to have certainty, but also there are areas where we don't need to have doubt. We can have confidence in what God has told us. And we can be rooted in his truth. And that can give us solid ground on which to live and so make us less vulnerable to wrong ideas, to false teaching. So I think the encouragement here is to, to reach settled convictions. And maybe you're someone who's been thinking lots about Christian stuff for a while but you've never quite landed. You've learned lots, but never quite landed, never quite committed, never quite jumped in. And I think this is what Paul is saying, is we need to jump in to commit, to land. And that will give us much better security and protection and safety. Finally, third question. How far will these false teachers, will these terrible people get? Uh, let's have a read of verse 8. 
Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. They are men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. How far will they get? Not very far. Not very far. Uh, folly will be exposed. Truth outs, ultimately. And, and I think that's because there is an instability to falsehood. There is an instability to lies. Uh, inevitably, it sort of collapses in on itself. Uh, I think of going on DV. I don't know, this time of year, everyone's going off on DV expeditions. And I think back to my time of doing Duke of Edinburgh, going camping in Wales. I remember going with, it was an old A-frame tent. Do you remember those? Does anyone remember those? And we just didn't quite have the right poles. We didn't quite have the right pegs. And we made an absolute hash of putting this tent together. And uh, inevitably, it lasted for a little bit, but inevitably it collapsed. The poles weren't quite long enough, and it all sort of fed in on itself. And that's a picture, I think, of what happens to false teaching, to uh, ideas which are based not on truth. In the end, they collapse in on themselves because they just don't fit with the reality of this world. They're not solid. They're not a firm foundation. I think we see, we see that on a macro level. We see, you know, regimes uh, in countries come and go throughout history. Uh, and those that have particularly been built on falsehoods and lies, eventually they all implode. There's a sort of inherent instability to anything, a worldview, a regime built on lies. It's just unstable. It just won't last. It won't survive because it doesn't match the realities of this world. And it's true for false teaching in the church as well. It just won't have legs. It won't survive. It, as it hits against the reality of life, in the end, it will fall away. So I know of no church called St. Arius. Do you know of any called St. Arius? Or St. Pelagius? Or St. Marcion? You might never have heard of those people at all. Uh, those people, they were all heretics uh, in the early church. Uh, people who spoke falsely, false teachers. Uh, Arius denied the divinity, the full divinity of Jesus Christ. Pelagius denied the reality and the depths of sin in our lives. Marcion denied the Old Testament and wanted to cut it out uh, entirely. And these ideas, they were big ideas. At the time, they would have been attractive. They would have been drawn people to them. And yet, in the end, they collapsed. They didn't survive. And that is true for any church. Any church that um, isn't loving God, that isn't teaching his truth, that takes a false gospel, that takes people away from the gospel we have revealed in the Bible, in the end, it won't survive. It hasn't got legs. It might look plausible. It might look great for a while. But a bit like my dear V10, it'll, ju it'll just collapse, it'll fold in on itself. There is an instability to, to falsehood, to, to heresy. And so we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be fearful. Don't be afraid, is that final application for us. And I love the fact that Paul point, points us in verse 8 to this incident 
uh, referring back to the time of Moses, uh, and you might know it, uh, when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and Aaron had his staff, and he was told to throw down the staff, and it will turn into a snake. And Pharaoh said, I can match that, and he called in some magicians. And tradition says that those uh, magicians, or at least two of them, were called Janus and Jombro. Haven't pronounced that right, but we have no idea how to pronounce their names. Um, and these people came in. And what did they do? They threw down their staff, and it turned into a snake. Do you know that story? And you think, wow, that's impressive. Uh, they can do exactly the same as what Moses and Aaron, who are representing God's truth, did, and these people who are supposed to represent falsehood, they were able to do the same thing. And you think, oh, help. Gosh, does, does it not matter what's true and what's false? But do you know how the story goes on? Uh, we have it here. In, uh, I put it on your handout. Pharaoh then summoned his wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Just gobbled it up. Aaron's snake swallowed up theirs. And it's just a great picture of God. He, his truth swallows up falsehood. It swallows up evil. Swallows up deception and distortion. And truth outs and truth wins. And we see that supremely in the work of Jesus Christ. Through his death, defeating death. His resurrection, bringing life. I hear these words of 1 Corinthians 15. We read this. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think this passage is an encouragement to us to beware false teaching, to be realistic about the damage and the harm and the nature of it, the characteristics of it, to search our own hearts and to turn to the gospel, to turn to Jesus and place our confidence and our trust and find security in him and know life in his name. So uh, let's um, just take a moment of quiet and uh, have that opportunity to do that. The band are going to come up and uh, we're going to sing a song, a great song that's just an opportunity to express our trust, to put our confidence in Jesus Christ, uh, away from ourselves, to reorientate our hearts, our loves to God, uh, to trust him through the good times and the bad times. A moment of quiet, and I'll lead us in prayer, and we'll sing. Heavenly Father, in a world that can often feel very uncertain, can at times feel really quite frightening, thank you that your word is honest and open about the reality of tough, even terrible times. The reality of terrible people and how dangerous and damaging, false understandings of you
can be. And help us to turn to Jesus, who declared all that is true. Thank you for his goodness. Thank you for his love. Thank you for his grace and his mercy. And Lord, help us to root ourselves in him and look to him now. In his name, amen.